Our second scripture reading today comes from John 4. And so, again, we're going to hear the second half of the passage that we heard earlier. Remember last week we started with the Samaritan woman. Now we're going to hear about what happened afterwards. So, just then, as the conversation was finishing up, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or, why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? Now they left the city and they were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. But we've heard it ourselves. And we know, we know that this is truly the savior of the world. Steadily working through the house, right? We were at the front yard. We talked a little bit about that. We talked about one of the unsung heroes of the house, the coat room. And now we've moved our way into the living room of our holy home. Now, living rooms, I think, tend to be one of the most varied parts of the house. You know, it goes by different names. Some people will call it a living room. I know some folks will call it the den. We'll call it, you know, we've got, we've got the parlor, the parlor. Um, you know, we have different ways of, of talking about it. Sometimes we've got one room that's more like the formal living space, and then we've got a more intimate space. There's all sorts of things that we might add to it. It really becomes one of the rooms that seems to impart somebody's personal character on it, Right? Who you are is probably translated quite a bit by how your living room is set up. But I think there's one thing that is almost a guarantee of every single living room anywhere. And that it tends to be a place designed for knowing. Now, that's like, again, not an HDTV thing, right? Right? I don't know anybody who's, you know, 
flipping a living room so that we know better. It's kind of an odd way to put things, but follow with me here, because I think it helps if we talk a little bit about the different meanings of knowing, especially what's in Scripture as it talks about it. The Bible talks about a couple different ways of knowing. And if you'd like some more details, I actually wrote a paper on this, and I can put it in with the... If you're like, gosh, what I want to do more than anything this week is read somebody's seminary paper. I've got it for you. You laugh, but... So the Bible talks about a couple different ways of knowing. And one way that it talks about knowing is kind of a cognitive knowledge, right? This is, this is knowledge of experience, of analysis, of interpretation. It's that good, objective, <laughs> book-learning kind of knowledge, Right? Historical facts. 1776. If I said 1776, y'all are going to generally be able to say, oh, isn't that the year of American independence? Objective, factual knowledge. And taking that and turning it into some form of analysis. But that's not the only type of knowledge that the Bible talks about. There's also this sense of understanding. Kind of an embodied knowledge It's a way to think about it. A knowledge of self, one that is sensory, one that has an engagement of senses. And if you want to get a sense of how the Bible talks about this particular type of knowledge, you only have to look at the psalm that was read today. Do you hear it? David is talking about how he was known so deeply by God that he was literally knit together in his mother's womb. I cannot come up with an objective understanding of how that works. Deep knowledge, embodied knowledge, something more subjective that cannot necessarily work off of a history guide, or in this case with the psalm, a book of biology. There's another part of this kind of knowledge, too, that it feels a little stronger. It feels a little wild. No one is going to freak out and start talking about hating people because you said 1776 was the year that America declared its independence. It's usually not something that's, like, scary, right? It doesn't quite add tension. But do you hear at the end of that psalm this particular kind of deep understanding, sensory knowledge, that it pours over in the sense of like, I want you to destroy my enemies. I want you to tear apart the people who are saying ill will to you. It is a powerful type of knowledge because it rests someplace that is deeper than just something you'd find in a book. And so these two types of knowledge are often talked about in Scripture. There are two different types of words in the Old Testament, and they kind of get represented in a bunch of different words in the Greek. But suffice it to say, you can kind of put them in these two categories. The first knowledge that we're talking about is more objective, and the second type of knowledge is more subjective. And our living rooms operate kind of like this, right? So we often have televisions, in there, right? We often have um, books in, in our living rooms. If we have a coffee table, we might have coffee table books that show nice pictures, or they've got other things that tell us things. We can pick them up. We can watch TV. We can read a book, and we can say, oh, I am learning something. 
there is something being transmitted. If I watch the news, I am able to analyze and interpret what's going on. I am developing a certain sense of objective knowledge. You all have those in your living rooms, right? But that's not the only thing that's in our living rooms. We have couches. We have chairs. If you look at your bulletin today, Holly found this really great, cozy living room. One I wish I had. You know, when I winter over in Vail, I could go sit in my living room and have casual conversation. We have those things too, right? Everything was about objective knowledge. Why would we want comfortable chairs and blankets? And why would we want to develop a space where the, cha- where the chairs are turned in so that we can have conversation with one another? We often make our living room one of the most publicly intimate spaces in our houses. Precisely because we expect more to happen in that space than just objective interaction. I don't sit in my living room and just expect with the kids to say, so please tell me objectively what happened in your day. Well, Dad... You dropped me off to school at 8.14. I walked 100 steps into the kindergarten room. We sat, and I went through a series of subjects, and then you picked me up. We came home, and now I am standing in front of you. We don't do that, right? I apologize if you do. (laughs) But no, when I ask Abe, how's your day, bud? He tells me stories. He tells me something more. It's not just the objective, but it's the deeper things around it. I sense what's going on. His heart connects with mine. His experiences connect with mine, and it's a deeper sense of knowledge. And I think we build our living rooms to foster that kind of conversation. Now, unfortunately, I think there are times that we preference one type of knowledge over the other to our collective detriment. Have you ever been to, you know, kind of a a get-to-know-you party, right? Sort of like, you know, cocktail party kind of thing, and all it is is small talk, exhausting, right? I don't need to tell everybody 50 times what I do for a living. The weather hasn't changed in the two hours since we've been here. We don't need to continue to talk about it. But that's a particular type of knowledge, right? When we do small talk and we kind of have basic conversations, that's really just kind of objective, sort of let's check some boxes off. I am a pastor. I live in Delaware. Outside of that, it really doesn't tell you much. Really, at the end of the day, that can lead to an awful boring night because that objective knowledge by itself is incomplete. Or maybe you've been to a party and you have that one conversation with that person. This sounds like the beginning of a lifetime movie to me, right? Imagine a gorgeous, you know, like Vail, Colorado living room and you're sitting there and you look across the room and you catch eyes. You know that you're in love and you go and you sit down next to the person and you start having (laughs) you start having conversation with them. And you get to know them, and you get to know them, and it's beautiful, and you feel like you've made the deepest connection you will ever make in your life. Now you're sure that there's such thing as a soulmate, but you forget to get their number. 
And you, you actually forget to catch their name. See what I'm saying? This is a Lifetime movie. Ready to happen. I think I've watched this movie, not by choice, by force, but... You know something beautiful has happened. There's a deep sense of connecting with somebody that you can't entirely explain, but without some objective knowledge, all you're going to do is wander around hoping for that moment that you happen to get on the corner of Sandusky Street, right there at Coffeeology, and wouldn't you know it, the love of your life is coming out of Coffeeology. Title, scene, done. I'm expecting some sort of producer credit on that movie. So by themselves, they're not really sufficient, right? Objective knowledge by itself isn't enough. Subjective knowledge isn't enough by itself. In fact, it might be the worst thing that we do is to apply judgment on one type of knowledge because of the other. We presume one kind of knowledge will drive the other, and it may be because we struggle to have them meaningfully separated. I mean, that's like any given day on Facebook now, right? Oh, this person said this thing? This person posted that thing on Facebook? Well, I don't need to go any further. I know who they are. I think that person voted for that person. Do you know that? Well, you're not coming to my cocktail party. Objective facts leading to recognizing the subjective, and we reject the subjective just purely because we don't like the objective facts. Boy, that's life. And could you imagine? Here's the thing could you imagine how awful this gospel over the last couple of weeks would have been if Jesus acted like that? It would have been terrible. Here, let me paraphrase for you what I think it would be. Jesus. Realized he had to go someplace. He had to go through Samaria, but he certainly kept to himself because he didn't want to be around those people. The Samaritans, suspect and degenerate that they are. And so he and his disciples wandered quickly through Samaria as quick as they can to get back to their people because, thank God, I want to hang out with them. I mean, it would have taken us a lot less time to read over the last couple weeks, but I don't know what I would have gotten out of it. Certainly wouldn't have preached on it. seems like Jesus is finding a way to apply these sorts of knowledge together. Jesus had no objective reason to talk to this Samaritan woman. She's Samaritan, she's a woman, and apparently she's had five husbands. No reason to talk to her. And you can tell that Because of the beginning of this gospel text today, that the disciples came back stunned. What is going on, Jesus? We just went to go get you food, and what have you gotten us into? What is Jesus doing? What is this Samaritan woman doing? but we can see what happens when Jesus uses both of these type of knowledge together to tell a deeper and better story. 
When I hear the woman saying to her tribe, her community, that he told me everything that I've done, that doesn't hear like an objective conversation. He told me what I ate. He told me the times I go get water. No. It's something deeper. He told me everything I've done. He understood me. He somehow knew my objective reality, and yet even in the midst of that, connected to something more important and more deep about me and who I am. And do you see what happens as a result? An entire group of people want to know more. An entire group of people are saying, Jesus, I know we shouldn't hang out with you either, but can you come stay with us? Not just one day, but two days. All because Jesus was willing to balance out the objective reality of the circumstance with something more subjective. Perhaps that this person is beloved more than they could ever understand by a God who loves all. It's why Jesus then pushes the disciples. Hey, I know we've got this saying, because it sounds like, right, that we're not quite in the harvest time, according to this scripture. Hey, you know, four months from now will be harvest time. That's an objective fact, but let's go deeper than that. Let's think more about what's going on in this world. Do you see all these people around you here in Samaria? They're ready. They want to know. They want to be known. So don't wait. Let's go. I think our living rooms are at their best when we can, in a comfortable, intimate space, bring both types of knowledge into conversation with each other. That's something we see on the news, something that's going on, that we can explain it, explore it, discuss it in a way that has hope that has meaning, that carries some of the deepest things that we hold inside of us. Not that we take it at its objective face value, but that we bring all the knowledge we can bear. It's how I think when I talk to churches and I think about our churches that we could have, for instance, a reasoned disagreement about immigration policy in this country. There are some of you who say, we should build a wall. There are some of you who will say, no, we shouldn't build a wall. But I will tell you right now, if an immigrant family walked into this church and was hungry and needed clothes, I have no doubt that you would open up your hearts and your arms to take care of that family. Because that's what we do as Christians. That's what we do as people who love God. We can look at the objective facts, but when the heart connects to the heart, there's something more important. There's something deeper just like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. And that changed that part of the world permanently. It's getting to know why there might be people here who are sitting around still waiting to take their coats off instead of just presuming that it's too cold. It's knowing the deeper story in somebody. And even more practically, y'all, on a day like today, when we're going to end this worship service and then we're going to review our, our annual report, it's a reminder that 
As much as these are wonderful, and I am thankful to all of the session members and all the people who worked very hard to compile this, this will not tell the whole story of Old Stone Presbyterian Church. No single number on a budget line can ever tell the story of hope to someone who has lost it and the work that we do in order to gain that. No report can tell you how the Spirit moves in this congregation. If we only took this as its face value, as this was enough, then we've missed so much of what is so beautiful about living life in community. However, we live in the reality of any given moment, right? So it seems like when we can place these two things in conversation, when we can recognize the subject, the objective reality, but talk about and dream the subjective, the deeper, the sensory, the things that move us forward, we might be able to live like the Samaritan woman. Who maybe for the first time in her life was known. And in being known, was still loved by the Messiah, by Christ in this world. And in that knowing, in that believing, in spite of what presumed objective facts that would say to the contrary, she went out and she changed the world. I so often want to imagine myself as a disciple, even though they're bumbling, at least they're close to Jesus, but I wonder how often I truly am the Samaritan woman just dying to hear that I'm known. We see ourselves so often as disciples, but perhaps we are the Samaritan woman just wanting to be known and to be sent out to a community to let them know that the Messiah is here. So let this space, let this time be a good living room full of ways that we can know and be known in a safe, intimate space. Because friends, there's a chance to change the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the Samaritans in our midst. Thank you that we are known not just by the objective, but by the deeper subjective as well. Amen.